Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Welcome to a very special edition of the Edge of Sports podcast. I'm Dave Zirin. This week we were supposed to talk to trailblazing trans triathlete Chris Mosier. But that's been put on hold for one week. So we'll talk to Chris next week. Following the events of last Wednesday in my home city here of Washington, D.C. Now I'm going to take some time in a moment to speak about the most important sports politics story that we should be focusing on the WNBA players and their support for now Senator-elect Raphael Warnock against WNBA owner Kelly Loeffler. But let's start by talking about Wednesday. Look, I agree with the pundits who say that the fascist white supremacist riot that took place in Washington, D.C. on January 6th truly is a day that will live in infamy. Not because I view the Capitol as some kind of beacon of democracy, It's a building built by slave labor where wars that have savaged millions across the globe have been planned and funded, and I have no love for any of that. But I do have love for this city, this state, this district, whatever you want to call D.C., and I'll call it a city because until we win statehood, which we absolutely should, that's what it is. It's a federal city. It's Washington, D.C. But what Wednesday was was an invasion by a fascist mob into a place once known as Chocolate City. It's a lot more than just the capital. It's a place that was the home of people like Duke Ellington, Dorothy Height, Marvin Gaye, Roberta Flack, and Hilda Mason. And if you don't know all of those names, do please look them up. It's the home of Go-Go, Half Smokes, and a resistance to racism that stretches back as long as there's been a federal city. It's a place where hoods are neighborhoods, where people choose to sit on their front porch instead of the back. You know, John Kennedy once said that D.C. was a city of southern efficiency and northern charm. In other words, the worst of both worlds. But Kennedy got it wrong. It's a city that in many ways is the worst nightmare of the old South. Charming, unless you're a racist piece of human garbage. Fast forward to Wednesday. A fascist mob invaded our city. They had Confederate flags, Nazi gear, pipe bombs, guns, and some of them had badges. Make no mistake about that. Even though not one of the arrested hailed from D.C., this was an inside job perpetrated by police who were not so much caught flat-footed but caught red-handed, facilitating this dime store coup. And it was obvious to everyone, from my kids to Joe Biden, that if they had been black or brown, they would have been massacred instead of shown the way to the offices of choice that they wanted to vandalize. As Jalen Brown of the Boston Celtics put it, it reminds me of what Dr. King said. There's two split different Americas. In one America, you get killed for sleeping in your car, selling cigarettes, or playing in your backyard. In another America, you get to storm the Capitol and no massive arrests or tear gas. Now, one of the results of this fascist riot was to make people who live in this city 
feel manifestly unsafe. And no one's talking about that. They didn't just breach the Capitol. They breached the city. My partner teaches DC history in the public schools. And she described her students as exhausted by the events. And she spent seven hours on Zoom on Thursday, nursing them through their trauma. I had family and friends shut their shades, wondering if stray bullets were gonna start flying, if the Civil War was about to begin. Now, fascism has many goals, but one of which is to beat opponents of fascism into a kind of dull, exhausted submission. If violence is everywhere, then the best place to be mentally and physically is nowhere, to check out, keep your head down, and huddle with your family. And that tendency in the years ahead is what we have to resist. What is needed in DC, and frankly, what is needed in every city in this country, is an anti-fascist network, organizations that will take to the streets in numbers that swamp the opposition, that outnumber and intimidate them, and send them scurrying back to their rodent holes. We have built these networks in the past. In DC, as recently as 2018, on the one-year anniversary of the Charlottesville March that took the life of Heather Heyer, we completely overwhelmed a Unite the Right Nazi rally. The police clearly, as if any more evidence was ever needed, are not gonna magically transform into an anti-Nazi brigade. Fighting Nazis needs to be our work. And please note that when I say fighting Nazis, I'm not talking about any kind of street fighting adventurism. I'm talking about marching upon them, denying their ability to assemble and denying their ability to burn, pillage and kill. So how do we build such organizations? How do we build an anti-fascist network across this country? This is all, of course, complicated dramatically by the pandemic. We know that people are scared and isolated because of this disease that is now stalking and killing 4,000 people per day. But we need to be creative. So here's what you can do. First, find out if people in your community are already doing this work. You know, you don't wanna recreate work that's already being done. And the best way to do that is to contact local labor and church leaders and ask them to set up some kind of invitation-only organizing meeting or Zoom event where people who want to organize against Nazis can come together. If they tell you that this is already in the works, great. Find out how you can help. The fact that people are acting means that you're already halfway there. If there are no plans, encourage them. Then try to remember that a pandemic doesn't mean an absence of struggle. This past summer saw the largest marches in the history of the United States following the police murder of George Floyd. After news of Biden's victory, to use another example, thousands came into the streets of DC to celebrate. And at least in DC, people were masked and distanced. People were actually very responsible when they took to the streets in the summer and the fall. This is not the time to wait for the wheels of justice to do the work for us, because frankly, they won't. This is also not the time to listen to those who preach that we should just ignore fascists, that if we counter protest, we will just be giving them the oxygen they want. That's nonsense. If you ignore them, they will make themselves impossible to ignore. As Richard Seymour just wrote in The Guardian, and this is a long quote, but I really want y'all to listen closely. Trumpism is not an aberration, but a mass phenomenon. Trump greatly expanded his base between 2016 and 2020, adding more than 10 million votes to its total. He expanded into places and demographic constituencies thought to be close to him. 
No other Republican presidential candidate could have done this. And it was achieved precisely through the same means that led to the spectacle in the Capitol. To hope that Joe Biden can diffuse this by restoring civility and bipartisanship to Washington would be unforgivably complacent. The United States, and not just the United States, urgently needs an anti-fascist movement. We have not begun to see the end of this, end quote. Fighting fascism is going to become a regular feature of American life, especially as white people become a minority and politicians prey upon and weaponize racist anxieties. We might as well start organizing now because the future depends on it. So that's my two cents about this week. Um, I'm gonna throw it and we'll see what he has to say to my producer, David Tigaboo, about his thoughts on the last week. See if there are any holes in what I'm saying or if there's anything he thinks we need to add to the discussion. Yeah, no, thanks, Dave. Um, I think that everything that you said is on point, and I really like how you made this distinction between the city of D.C. and its power structure. I think a lot of people that don't spend any time here don't really get that, that D.C. is its own place, it's its own city with its own history, and people that have been here for, you know, decades and and generations and even centuries. Um, So I've seen this point made, and it's the obvious point that, you know, if, if these were black protesters or brown po- protesters or just non-white protesters, they would have been shot down. They would have been massacred. And I think that's an obvious point, right? When you see these cops taking selfies with protesters while the protesters have invaded the U.S. Capitol and they're in the rotunda and you see old ladies being walked down the steps of the Capitol, right? It, it, it's crazy. Like, it, we know that. It's obvious. But it's also like ideological, right? I was around for Occupy Wall Street. I know what the makeup of those crowds were. They tended to hew younger and whiter. And they also got their brains beaten out. So there also seems to be an ideological component on top of a racial component, which is to say, if you advocate for liberation or justice or any kind of progressive left or pro-black cause, regardless of who you are, you will get your brains beaten in. And if you push for increased cop power, <laughs> if you if you push for reactionary politics, you get selfies in the rotunda. And I think this is what this has been made very, very, very clear. You know, the other thing, too, is I was I, like I saw that on, on social media, one journalist said that there were reports that these folks that were trying to commit a coup, a, a failed insurrection, some of them were flashing cop badges and military markers while they walked in. And that was, I guess, supposed mm-hmm. to signal to the police that everything was okay. There was one tweet that went viral about a woman who was complaining that the mace that, that she or other people got in their face was totally uncalled for. And that should be reserved for BLM or, you know, other groups of people that are the real problem. Right. And so that was surreal to see in real time to, to even just kind of see that kind of overt sort of acknowledgement of, of the two Americas thing that we keep talking about. I think I keep going back to this point about white rage and anger and how it has always been coddled and excused for much of U.S. history. I wonder sometimes if like the country has a collective amnesia because I see, you know, these pundits that say things like, you know, this is unparalleled and 
you know, this, this is never, this is crazy. This is America. This can't be America. And while this specific action is unparalleled. Better than this. Or we're better than this. Right. We're better than this. Right. And, and, and while this specific action is unparalleled, right? Like the idea that you could storm, successfully storm the U.S. Capitol. The grievance isn't. I was actually reading about this uh, earlier this week that, you know, whether it's 1898, Wilmington, North Carolina, where a multiracial democracy gets unseated by the, a vicious gang of white supremacists who forcefully take over the, the, the state government, whether it's the lead up to the Civil War, whether it's post-Reconstruction. There was even a move in 1960 to deny JFK the electoral victory by this like movement of independent electors in South Carolina, right? So a lot of this stuff is paralleled in terms of the sorts of grievances and anti-democratic uh sentiments right that that these people push out and so i do think it's important that we understand that like yes u.s history is actually rife with a lot of parallels here that we should be going back to and and reading about but i guess the last thing that i would say is and you kind of talk about this where does this leave us these people are not going home anytime soon right Maybe some get arrested. I think a lot of people might get away with what they did. We will see. That remains to be seen. But where does that leave the country when 75 million people voted for him? And maybe not all 75 million support what happened this week, but we still live in a country with a lot of these people. Like, what do we do? Like, do we empower the FBI, you know, an institution with its own problematic past to go after these people? Right. Like, what do we do? Right. Because this is a matter of survival now. And I I, I honestly don't know. I really don't know. You mentioned history. And if there's one thing we see by looking at history, it's that when you empower state institutions like the FBI, I mean, they'll invariably turn on us, on anti-fascists. I mean, you saw this with the FBI empowered in the 1950s to go after Klan members who were killing uh, freedom riders and civil rights protesters, what did the FBI do? They villainized and attacked and harassed and surveilled Dr. King and Baird Rustin, you know, and, and started COINTELPRO. And that wasn't just from the mind of J. Edgar Hoover. I mean, that's the logic of the state. And that's why we need to build our own forces because we can't depend on these. And also it's like anybody who's read about this stuff knows that, um, you know, the white supremacist movement in this country has been infiltrating law enforcement. I mean, really for as long as there's been law enforcement, but it's been, it's stepped up pretty dramatically over the last 30 years. And I think what Trump has done is he's galvanized what's always been here. There have always been like white supremacists in this country. There's always been a clan. There's always been like very scary gangs and prisons, uh, motorcycle gangs. Like th- this has existed, but th- they've never been galvanized. And that's who we saw in part in D.C. You also saw a lot of wealthy people in D.C. I mean, this was hardly an uprising of the proletariat. Um, My goodness, someone even flew in on their private plane to invade the Capitol. Yeah. Right. There's all kinds of stories about this. Doing interviews from the Willard Hotel. You know, the Willard, no, it costs about as much as some people's mortgage to stay there. Um, and so it, it, it's, it's kind of a ridiculous spectacle of, of people who are claiming that we some 
need to reach out to these folks, that these are the forgotten, the dispossessed. It's like, no, you need to build a movement that shows that this is unacceptable, that this crosses a line. It should have been done years ago because they actually live in an alternative reality. Reality, this election was stolen. And the only way to respond to that is you can't respond to that with logic. You can't respond to that with debate. You have to respond to that with an overwhelming show of resistance to the lie, to the big lie, because that that's a Joseph Goebbels thing. This idea that if you tell a lie that's big enough, you can get people to believe it. So th this is where we are and this is where we need to go. And one of the unfortunate things about this is that this happened on Wednesday. Wednesday morning, we woke up to, and I was shocked about this. Other people weren't shocked, particularly people in Georgia, but the double Senate win by the Democrats in Georgia was a shocker for me. And the WNBA players played a critical role in making that happen. We'll be back right after this, but first, a quick word from the sponsor of this podcast, The Nation Magazine. Okay, look, the need for independent journalism has never been more important, and The Nation brings it each and every week like they've been doing since 1865. I'm serious. This is what you gotta read. It's The Nation Magazine. Go to thenation.com slash subscribe, and please never forget that when you support The Nation magazine, you are also supporting the continued existence of this podcast. So please subscribe. Go to www.thenation.com slash subscribe. And now, back to the Edge of Sports podcast. And now, I've got some choice words. Um, okay, the WNBA players are having a moment, and we shouldn't forget that because of what happened in the Capitol. Pundits and politicos across the spectrum are pointing out that without the support of the Basketball League, Senator-elect Reverend Raphael Warnock would be returning to Atlanta's Ebenezer Baptist Church instead of heading to Washington, D.C. The story is by now well known. WNBA players spent their summer and fall wearing Vote Warnock shirts, standing with his candidacy against WNBA franchise owner Kelly Loeffler. This included players on the team Loeffler owns a 49% stake in the Atlanta Dream. The WNBA players opposed Loeffler less for her Republican politics than for the fact that she ran an ugly campaign against the Black Lives Matter movement, the mob as she described those who protested the police murder of George Floyd, and even the right of her own players to have a political voice. She also posed for photos with a leading Klansman, supported Donald Trump's coup efforts, and refused to meet with WNBA players who invited her to a conversation about the campaign. One of those players was Laisha Clarendon of the New York Liberty. And this is what she told me after the Georgia results were in. Quote, Holy shit, we just flipped the Senate seat. Not only did we oust Kelly Loeffler, but we helped a progressive candidate we truly believe in win. That is something I want to be clear about in our intention as a league. This wasn't simply a targeting of an owner for one comment, but an organizing around maintaining our values as members of the WNBA. I'm feeling like the power of collective action from athletes is just now starting to scratch the surface. The country better get ready. Another of those players was the Atlanta Dream's point guard, Renee Montgomery. Ms. Montgomery took the year off from playing because of concerns about racism and the pandemic. She's a committed activist and predictably in a state of what I would call thrilled relief about what happened in Georgia. I was able to get a comment from her about the vote and she said, 
I'm excited for the win for Warnock, who will be an excellent senator, but I'm equally excited for the win for democracy. Our community is taking back our power one vote at a time. This is only the beginning. Montgomery's words are very intentional. She said, win for Warnock, not loss for Loeffler. Clarendon also very pointedly said, not only did we oust Kelly Loeffler, but we helped a progressive candidate we truly believe in win. The WNBA players took great pains before deciding to support Warnock and not merely voice their opposition to Loeffler, using them like they were sister soldier with a jump shot. They zoomed with Warnock, debated and discussed his politics, and in the end decided to lend him their support. They had the power to not only take down Loeffler, after all, who knows a boss better than their workers, but drive up the positives for Warnock, who was polling at 9% on the day the WNBA players started campaigning on his behalf. Montgomery says, it's only the beginning. And that could mean all kinds of things. It could mean that this is the beginning of a new era of athlete activism in the electoral realm. It could mean that Reverend Warnock will be the first of a new wave of black senatorial candidates. But it could also mean something far more dangerous to the minders of sports. It could mean that franchise owners, billionaires whose money has often been made in the most unsavory of ways, will no longer get carte blanche to market their league as progressive and woke, while also supporting politicians who traffic in division and bigotry. These franchise owners are often, as Kelly Loeffler proudly described herself, to the right of Genghis Khan. No longer will they be allowed to rampage with impunity. No longer will pro sports teams become money laundering operations where franchise owners get millions in public money and turn around and use that money to underwrite politicians that the public would otherwise never support. No more profiting from black bodies while disregarding black lives. This is a very different situation than in 2014 when Donald Sterling, franchise owner of the LA Clippers, was caught on tapes to saying all kinds of racist drivel and forced to sell his team. No one caught Loeffler on tape. She did not drop any slurs in between her photo ops with Klansmen. This was a straight up rejection of her politics and a statement that she has no place in the WNBA and no place in the United States Senate. The next step, which feels inevitable at this point, will involve Loeffler selling that 49% stake in the Atlanta Dream and leaving Georgia as quickly as she moved there from Chicago in order to be handed that Senate seat. As for the sports world, the WNBA players have put the ownership class on notice. No longer will you do your political business in shadows while we look the other way. Athletes have long had the power to expose the ugly side of the owners, but the WNBA players are the first to flex it and they won't be the last. And now that I've given those choice words, it's also worth saying that you can't separate this story from Tuesday night with what happened on Wednesday afternoon for the simple reason that it feels like such a threat to the people who stormed the Capitol that people, particularly black people, are voting and are getting plugged into the electoral system. I mean, these things are not disconnected at all because they feel outnumbered and they're responding not with trying to understand what the country is going to look like going forward, but responding instead with racism and violence, which shouldn't be too surprising, as my producer David Tigabu said, if you know anything about U.S. history. 
We'll be back right after this with a quick word from Edge of Sports. Hey, everybody out there. This is Dave Zirin with the Edge of Sports podcast. People got to know that we put this podcast on with elbow grease and and bubble gum on a weekly basis. And we're proud of the work that we do. We love it. But we can't do it without support from you, the listener. So please go to patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod and support the podcast. That's patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod. Any little bit you might give to support the podcast actually makes a huge difference to the work we're trying to do. That's patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod. We appreciate you. Make no mistake about it. And now... Back to the Edge of Sports podcast. Well, that's all the time we have this week. I'm cutting it off there. Uh, For everybody out there listening, stay safe, wear a mask, stay frosty. If you want to contact me, you can always hit me up at edgeofsports at gmail.com. We are out of here. Peace.
Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill.